Years ago, when we would go on a uh, short trip or a vacation, we discovered a way to help our children process the adventure. You see, we had done a lot of reading and listening to experts, and one of them gave us this very simple question that would help the kids think through where they had been, what they had enjoyed on that trip, and uh, then to express why. And the question was really simply this. We would all go somewhere, family excursion, we'd get back in the car, and we would say, what was your 10 on our trip today or on our vacation? And the thing is, everybody had to listen. Everybody had to listen to one another. There was no evaluation. Somebody's 10 was their 10, and we celebrated it with them. What we discovered is that really, in a simple way, we were helping our children learn how to process an event in their lives. We've all had times in our lives when we needed to take a step back and process or think through. We've all had events or situations to, that have affected us, and we've had to kind of figure out, how did that impact me? When it's been a positive experience, it's really helpful to process the positive experience and, and to just kind of remember the joy and take encouragement from it. When it's been a negative experience, it's important to process that experience and to be honest about how that event, event has affected us and, and, and to think about and to really think through how we'll move on. When it's been a learning experience, we need to process and think through the experience and discover what we've learned and how it will help us grow. We all need to process events in our lives. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. And instead of reading, because it's a lengthy passage, instead of reading it all for you, I'm going to walk you through it. And this, this, is, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Luke 24, 13 starts a section in Luke that is unique to Luke. He's going to tell us about a couple of disciples that were leaving Jerusalem and were processing the events that had taken place over the past week. I can only imagine how much processing was going on from Friday night, the night that we call Good Friday, through Resurrection Sunday in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. Think about it. For the followers of Jesus, there was the elation of the triumphal entry and Jesus coming in. There was the shock of seeing Jesus arrested and beaten and crucified. There was the dread of Saturday. The dread of just wondering, had it all been for naught? And then the elation and wonderment mixed with confusion on Sunday when they learned that the body was gone, that the women were saying they'd seen an angel and they'd told him that Jesus was alive. Whew, what a roller coaster of emotions. One thing we need to bear in mind this wasn't just the 12. There were many who had become, become part of the entourage of Jesus. And when we get into volume 2 of Luke, the book of Acts, we're going to see that there were 120 people in an upper room praying and waiting for God's promise or Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit would come. So there was a larger group than just the 12. Luke chapter 24, 13 tells about two of those followers. Luke tells us that they were headed to the town of Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. We know now that it was seven miles west of Jerusalem. 
They were, using our word, processing the events of the past few days. You can imagine these two men walking the seven miles home, engrossed in conversation. You can imagine that they're so engrossed in conversation that when a a stranger, another traveler, kind of catches up to them and is walking alongside them, they're, they're not really focused on who he is. They're focused on their conversation. We'll pick it up there. They were talking, verse 14 of Luke 24, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came back and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus is curious. He comes walking up to them and And he tries to figure out what they're discussing, and they apparently stop dead in their tracks there. Luke says their faces were were downcast. In other words, they were really sad. And you might say, wait, wait, what? Jesus is alive. They should be happy. But remember, they hadn't seen Jesus yet. They, They had not remembered his teaching. They hadn't applied it to their life yet. They were still in their mix of grief and amazement. An empty tune, but no explanation. And the only thing being reported in the papers at this point, as it were, was that the body of Jesus had been stolen. You think about it. Let's let's turn the clock back for those of us who were there 20 years ago. 20 years ago, let's say on September 13th, 2001, if someone walked up to you and said, why, are, why is everybody so upset? What's going on in this country right now? There's no planes flying, and, and it doesn't seem to, everybody just seems all up in arms. What has happened? You would be incredulous. You would say, what, do you live in a cave? Are you like the only person in the world that doesn't know what's happened, that two planes flew into the Twin towers and they came down and there's rubble all over New York. Are, are, do you even have a clue? That, that'll give us a taste of their emotion. Jesus coaxes an explanation from them as they're walking. And I really think the key response in their whole answer is found in verse 21. When they said, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. All their hopes in their minds were dashed at the cross. Now it's the third day. 
There's not even evidence that Jesus existed because his body has disappeared from the tomb. It's like massive gaslighting. You can't even prove what you say is true because there's no body anymore. And that's where Jesus steps in. And in verse 25, he issues a bit of a rebuke to them. Listen to this. How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. After that rebuke, Jesus issues this Luke tells us that Jesus started with Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That's one of those verses when you're reading the Bible, there are these verses that you should stop and go, whoa, huh, I wonder what that's about. Jesus explaining from the Old Testament all the way forward, how that he is the central figure of the Scriptures. That had to be a sermon for the ages. One can only imagine how it resonated with them. In fact, they, they tell us in verse 32, after Jesus has they've gone into Emmaus, they're good, they're good Jews, they're good first century people, they're not going to let him keep traveling, come on into our house, have dinner. They sit, he sits down, he's given the place of honor, you would do that in a hospitality culture, and he blesses the food and he breaks it, and then all of a sudden their eyes are open. This person that they're walking along the road with going, man, he looks familiar, they're like, oh, it's Jesus, and he disappears. <laughs> According to Luke, they didn't even finish dinner, if you're reading it through, they hopped up and they hightailed it back to Jerusalem. About a two-and-a-half-hour walk to go seven miles. I think they made it in about 20 minutes, maybe 30 on the outside. They were carried along. They had to get back. And they go right into the room where the disciples are, where all the followers are, and they're going, it's true! We saw him! And then, boom, there's Jesus. And everybody's in awe. It says in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. It's like, <gasps> mass hallucination is real. We're all seeing the same thing. How can this be? They're startled. They're frightened. Jesus calms them down. You know, breathe. Just breathe. It's okay. Why are you troubled? How come you're doubting? Look first, here's my hands, here's my feet. I'm who you say, think I am, yeah. And by the way, I'm a little hungry, and ghosts aren't hungry, so I'm hungry. They hand him some fish, he eats it in their presence, and then he instructs them. Verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Oh, there it is again. There it is again. That's that, oh, this is an interesting verse. This is an important verse. This is something that could, should make us scratch our heads and go, I wonder what that's all about. And then he opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Wow. 
he gives it to them again. Cleopas and his friend, they get to hear it all over again. This is a message he'd been telling them. Now, we don't have time today. Don't have time to walk through the entire Old Testament and show you step by step how it points to Jesus. Uh, Dr. Walt Kaiser has cataloged at least 65 direct predictions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And we're going to, this fall, in a Thursday night Bible study, work through many of these predictions uh, coming up. But here's what I want to do. I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at the way Jesus described what was written about him and drawing on a couple of examples. Here's going to be our outline. You'll find it in verse 46. He told them, this is what is written about what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The death, burial, resurrection, and proclamation of Jesus was the plan all along. Just as Luke wanted his friend, the most excellent Theophilus, to be certain of what he was taught, it's what Luke tells him in the first few verses of Luke chapter 1, Jesus wants us to be certain as well. Because we live in times of of great confusion. There's even confusion as what it means to be a Christian. And we need a foundation that's solid, a foundation that's unshakable, a foundation that we can bank on. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus Christ is still that foundation. Knowing and understanding that God had been operating from a divine plan on his timetable from the beginning should give us a stability and a certainty. Things don't just happen willy-nilly. God is operating on a divine timetable, on a plan that he designed. Not only had Jesus taught this repeatedly to his disciples, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, he walks walks them through it again. Jesus knew that repetition was the key to learning. So what's the first point? What's the first thing that we need to be aware of? The Messiah will suffer. Jesus wanted them to know that. That's not popular language. In fact, a lot of people would, would feel that, well, if he is really God, he should never suffer. But, but the Messiah will suffer. It was prophesied throughout the first volume of the Bible, the Old Testament. Psalm 22 is a great description of the suffering and agony of Jesus on the cross. When David wrote that psalm, it, it, it comes across as a lament psalm. But it was also a prophetic psalm. David may not have been fully aware of what he was writing. But when you look at the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels, you find clear and direct references to this psalm, the fulfillment of this psalm. Psalm 21 verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you would look at the gospel account of Matthew in chapter 27 and verse 46 or or Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, what are you going to find? You're going to find Jesus uttering those very words. That psalm on his mind, on his heart, because he knew, whether anybody else knew it or not, he knew he was living the truth 
of David's prophecy. Psalm 22, verses 7 through 8, read this. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Look at Luke's words as he describes the scene in Luke chapter 23, verses 35 and 36. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen ones. That's amazing. The Psalms had already put in place for these disciples. They've already put in place for you and me that what we remember when we take communion, what we remember when we celebrate Good Friday, what we remember is something that God had already put into place. The Psalms prophesied the death of Christ. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Reads, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. One of the physical signs that Jesus used when he came to the disciples, right, is he said, look at my hands and my feet. You know, he said, touch me, see me, look at my hands and my feet. Look at the marks. Why? Because they pierce my hands and my feet. The psalmist prophesied the piercing of Jesus' hands and feet, the nail-pierced hands and feet. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, we read, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Luke 23, 34 says that along with all the other gospels says that very thing. Verse uh, 34 uh, of Luke 23 says this, And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Matthew and Mark and John will be more specific about his garment as well. The Messiah will suffer. And these things, these details that we see in the Gospels were already in the plan. They were already prophesied. But Jesus wanted to remind his followers and he reminded them time and time again it wasn't going to be the end. The crucifixion wasn't the end. The second thing Jesus said is the Messiah will rise from the dead on the third day. The Messiah would rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus himself used the story of Jonah to point to himself. You see, back in Matthew 12, we find the opponents of Jesus saying, show us a sign. Now, Jesus had already by that time done a few miracles that they should have been aware of. And so in Matthew 12, 28 to 32, Jesus points to Jonah. Jonah is that prophet, that ancient prophet, who was told by God to go to the city of Nineveh, the city of the Assyrians, the city of the enemy of Israel, and he was to go to them and preach repentance. And Joseph was like, no way. He goes the exact opposite direction. He flees from as far away from Nineveh as he can go. He's on a ship heading west through the Mediterranean, and God sends a storm, and the sailors know that this is a, some kind of a different storm. And finally, they come to Jonah, and he says, look, I'm a prophet, and I'm fleeing from God, and I've really messed up, so the best way to do this is throw me into the sea, and everything will be fine. And you know what? They have more faith than he does, because the Bible tells us they worked really hard to keep growing against the current, and finally they threw him in. 
And a large fish, the Bible says, provided or appointed by God, swallows him up. He's in the fish three days, three nights. He's belched out onto dry land, and he goes to Nineveh, and there's revival. And Jesus said, that's the only sign you're going to get. And he's referencing himself, that he would be in the grave. He would be, as it were, in, in uh, the, the pit of the earth, and he would come back in three days. They didn't believe him, but the disciples should have remembered that. They were there for that. The prophet Isaiah, in that great text of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, points to the resurrection. Now, so often we spend a lot of time on the all-we-like sheep portion. All-we-like-sheep have gone astray. We've each one to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes we're healed, and we see that. But, but if we stop there, which is an important point to hone in on, but if we leave it there, we miss the rest of the story. Because the rest of the story is in the last three verses of Isaiah 53. Listen carefully as I read it. Look for resurrection in these words. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous service will, servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Did you see it? It was in the 11th verse. He will see the light of life, and be satisfied. That is a reference to resurrection. Jesus would warn him, his disciples time and time again about going to Jerusalem, about suffering many things. He would tell them that he would go and he would suffer under the chief priests and the rulers of the land and he would be crucified, but he would rise again on the third day. You see, Jesus knew the prophecies. He knew the divine plan of the Godhead. He knew that his death was going to be awful and horrible, but it was not going to be permanent that he would rise again. And he had told his disciples repeatedly about that. They should have known. The resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just something we celebrate at Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core reality of our faith. It's what gives us that certainty that Luke wanted for his friend, Theophilus. It gives us the motivation to tell others about the amazing God we serve. And that brings us to the third point in Jesus' sermon here. The good news will be preached in the name of the Messiah to all nations. That's God's ultimate plan. God's ultimate plan is going to be played out in the second volume of Luke's two-volume set. We call it the book of Acts. It's the essence of the rest of the New Testament, how we, God's followers, the followers of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, go out and spread the news to all the nations. How do we do that? Remember, Jesus said his mission was he came to seek and to save those who were lost. In Luke chapter 2, we read of the birth of Jesus. 
And in that whole account, we have Mary and Joseph first bringing Jesus after eight days to be circumcised and then waiting for another period of about 30 days for Mary to be purified and then going back and dedicating their son. And in chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, they come into the temple. We're, we're told that there was a man there, a man who was very, very old. His name was Simeon. He had, promised that he, he had been promised that he wouldn't die until he, he saw the Messiah. And on that day, he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. And when he got to the temple, he spied this young couple carrying this little bundle of joy that they had named Yeshua. And and he goes up to him, and it wasn't uncommon for an elderly person to come and bless a child. And he reaches out, and he takes this child in his arms, and he says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And he goes on to talk about he is a light to the Gentiles. That wasn't just good words. Simeon was participating in the plan of God and referencing back what God had said through the prophet Isaiah in in these words. Isaiah writes in chapter 49 in verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's too small. I got a bigger plan for you, servant. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. When Jesus said that part of the plan was that his name would be preached to all the nations, he's fulfilling the plan of God from the beginning. Oh, friends, some 40 days later, Peter would stand before a crowd at Pentecost, and he would remind them that all that was taking place had been prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel and he ends with this verse, verse 32 of Joel 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Apostle Paul would echo the mission and the purpose of Jesus and he would also reference that same verse in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On that Sunday night in Jerusalem, the followers of Jesus were reminded that a sovereign God began with a purpose. And you could go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 in this veiled reference when, when God says to Eve that her offspring will be, have his heel bruised by the serpent but he will crush the serpent's head. And that's a promise of God for one day, a victory, a redeemer, one to set right the wrong that was brought about in the Garden of Eden. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's plan was for redemption to go through the cross and from the cross to the grave, and then to resurrection, and to make it available to all, because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When I consider this entire compendium of the Bible, and the fact that my faith in Jesus is not based on some kind of a whim and a promise that I get to go to heaven, woohoo! 
That's not the salvation message, by the way. The salvation message is not just a promise of something up there. The salvation message is not a promise of some kind of get wealthy and healthy and never suffer. The salvation message is based on a clearly laid out plan of God to make it possible for all to have access to him through the Savior and to then be indwelt by the Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us. I take great comfort in that plan. Now, as a pastor, I've been taught to ask the so what question. Okay, you've given us this nice overview. So what? Let me leave you with some so what's or what I call takeaways. And the first one is simply this. When I look at all of this, I realize I serve a God who is able to keep all his promises. Nothing and no one can derail the promises of God. Now, when you study the first volume of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, and you go through that, and you realize that the covenant of God is moving through, and sometimes the promise of God, the covenant, holds by a thread as different people have made bad decisions and put everything at risk, I'm always reminded that God's holding the thread. And I take great comfort in that, that God doesn't allow his plans to be derailed. And you know what? God works through you and me. And, and so God has a plan for my life and your life. And, and he has a direction for us. And, and he moves us and he calls us and he brings people into our lives. And, and sometimes we go off the rails, don't we? Sometimes we go astray. I was talking to a, a young person the other day, you know, one of the hip and the cool kids who was talking to me about GPS. And he said, you know, I kind of think of following God as, as following my GPS on my phone or in my car. And he said, sometimes I, I think I know a better route. And so I turn left when I should have turned right. And, or turn left when I should have turned right. And, and he said, I, you know, I start going down the route and, and the GPS does something. It reroutes to try to get me back on track. And he said, you know, in my life when I have followed God, it's all been good, but when I've kind of gone off on my own way, God lets me go and, and starts rerouting me. Now I have options. I can turn the GPS off and just keep going my own way. And you know what? God lets me go that way. But I can listen to him and reroute and come back and there may be some bumps along the road. There may be some potholes I didn't see that God saw. and There may be some prices to pay, but I can get back online. I take comfort in a God that keeps his promises, that won't let his plans derail, and that won't let my failures derail his plan for my life, but will call me back, gently get me back on track. My second, so what takeaway that I have is just that simple reminder. God loves me. God loves you. You see, if God didn't love us, he wouldn't have put the plan into motion. God loves us. And so what God did is he did everything necessary, everything necessary to bring us into relationship with himself. And all we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or the verse that we use, call on the name of the Lord. And he says, that's it. That's it. Now, there's a lot of work to do after that. That's not the end all. That's not your free ticket. But that's the step into the relationship. God loves you and me so much. He did all the work necessary to allow us to come into relationship with him. 
And you look at that last one that we looked at, the one that's still behind me, that proclaiming the message for all nations. Let me use 21st century language. God is inclusive. God's message is for all nations. That's why I can speak with confidence about brothers and sisters in Afghanistan because I know, I believe there are. And there are brothers and sisters in, in Uganda and you pick a country anywhere, a country even where someone says, oh, the, you know, the God isn't pre God's present everywhere. God's message is for all nations. God is inclusive. And God's message, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is for every human being. And then finally, the fourth thing I get here is God invites you and me to join him. We're invited into that work just as the disciples were. We get to be part of God's plan. Oh, God can do it without us. But that wasn't his desire. He wanted to include us, to have us be part of it. We're invited to join him in his redemptive work. That's what Peter and James and John and all those guys and gals that were up in that upper room, they went out and they began to proclaim the news of Jesus Christ. Everywhere they went, they told people about what Jesus had done for them. God invites us into that process. And it looks different for all of us. Some of us, like me, are called up here to talk a lot and wave our hands and maybe teach you a few things in the process. Some of you are called to go cross-culturally in various venues and to take the news of Jesus with you. Some of you are just called to come alongside a friend who's hurting and walk with them through a difficult time and show them by your love and compassion the love and compassion of Jesus. Some of us are called just to walk across the street and to build a friendship and a relationship with a neighbor and to spend time with them and eventually have that opportunity to say, can I, can I just tell you what Jesus did for me? We're all part of the process. And it all began with God's plan. Before any of us were around, God's plan to step into time and space history, to fix what was made wrong in Genesis 3, to redeem us through the cross, to pay the ultimate sacrifice sin through the death of Jesus on the cross, to conquer death and give us hope through resurrection, and then to invite us into the process. There was a lot of processing going on on that Sunday night. I got to believe it was a 10 for every one of those people. I wonder if years later, Cleopas was talking to his grandkids. Hey, kids, did I ever tell you about the time I, I met Jesus? And, yeah, Grandpa, you did. As a good grandpa, he would just keep going on with the story as if he hadn't told them yet. And that's what you and I get to do. Hey, ever tell you about the time I met Jesus? Ever tell you about how Jesus touched my life? Can I tell you what Jesus showed me today? Can I tell you how he's walking with me? We're all part of the plan. Part of the plan that began with the suffering of Jesus and his rising from the dead, and now we get to be part of the proclamation. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your plan, your divine plan. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you included us. 
In fact, Lord, you love the whole world that you included them. And we pray, Lord, that even if someone today has not yet called on the name of the Lord, that today will be the day. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross. Thank you for your power that enabled him to raise from the dead. Thank you for your message that rings true today. In Jesus' name, amen.